So that's the Ecuador update that um, Scott and I just participated in this trip last week. So thankful that we got to do that. As a church, we say it all the time, our mission statement is that we desire to be a spirit-filled family uh, that seeks to make disciples and plant churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. And so this is part of that nation's emphasis of wanting to make disciples and plant churches. We're doing that in Ecuador. We're seeking to do that in North Africa. We want to do that in Madison. Um, And when it comes to Madison and our neighbors, um, one of the things that we do is each city group has the opportunity to seek to invest in or serve some type of marginalized uh, population in Madison. And a few of our city groups have been investing lately in CareNet. And CareNet is a crisis pregnancy center um, for men and women, uh, mainly women, but sometimes men too, to come and get help, pregnant, scared, not a lot of resources, um, but don't want abortion. So it's kind of the anti-plant parenthood, and that's a very good thing in our culture today. And so we want to support... CareNet. And one simple way to do that is to pick up a baby bottle. They're in the back here by the coffee. Um, Let's get rid of all these baby bottles by the end of today. And all you got to do is take your spare change if you have some laying around. Or just um, at the end of the day if you have spare change or maybe some singles or whatever. Or 20s or 100s, whatever you want to do. And shove them in here. Um, And shove them in here and bring them back in a a couple weeks on Father's Day. And there's churches all over Madison participating in this this. Uh, this next few weeks, and so we want to join them, and so it's a really simple, great way to remember uh, CareNet in our culture, a valuable ministry that they're doing, that we have come alongside. Um, in addition, uh, James Davenport, where are you at? Stand up, stand up, my man. Uh, so everybody look at James. All right, so James uh, is, uh, has been working through the elder candidacy phase, and he's come to the end of that, and the elders, current elders, are recommending him to become a full elder. And so this is where you guys come in. Uh, we want your feedback, um, especially those of you who know James really well, maybe through your city group. If you have any reservations about him being an elder, we want to hear about that, okay? Because um, uh, eldership is the highest level of leadership in our church, and we take that very seriously, and we don't want anybody to feel steamrolled by that. So if you have feedback, um, we'd like to hear about it. And if not, we'll move forward with James in a couple weeks uh, as being a full elder. Um, he's been nothing but a blessing thus far to us, and so we'd love to hear your feedback, though, if there is any. Um, then finally, we had the technical glitch this morning, right? But here's the deal. When we have technical glitches, it's not a time to get angry. It's a time to be thankful, right? Because these guys are volunteers. And um, we got Taylor and Asher and Hans at the sound booth. We got lots of other volunteers all over the church. We got people making coffee and tea. We got people setting up things. Um, So it's a good reminder, like, hey, this church runs on volunteers. And yeah, we we screw up sometimes, and who cares? Like, that's not the point. Um, It's surprising that we don't screw up more often right? Um, so in light of the, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, this, this whole church thing goes off in terms of a Sunday morning, usually without a hitch. And so that's something to be thankful for. And so when you see these guys, hey, let's thank them. I mean, they come in early. They show up, they stay late, and they come early. And so let's go out of our way to thank them um, for, for volunteering to help us enable um, worshiping God on a Sunday morning, okay? All right. So let's uh, open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Uh, 
2 Peter 2, starting in verse 10. Actually, the second half of verse 10, 10b. I fear that in our culture, I fear that the church on the whole at times can have a certain reputation. And that reputation could be sometimes summed up like this. Fair or unfair, that's not the point right now. Sometimes this is the reputation of Christians. Christians are angry and disgusted by sinners. Now, of course, not everyone thinks this way, but through various forms of media and other channels that we would all be aware of, Christianity is oftentimes presented in that way. If you've ever seen uh, The Office, um, I forget her name, the blonde gal that was the Christian that's all buttoned up tight. What was her name? Angela. Just tightly wound. Anything that was sinful, you know, that's the classic representation if you've seen The Office. But she was a hypocrite on the, on, on, on the, on the other side of things. That's a great example. Oftentimes in recent days as well, this representation is all wrapped up with the issue of sexuality. And Christians are angry and disgusted by sexual sinners. Some people think it's really what we're all about. We're fired up about sexual sinners. We go hard after sexual sinners with ferocity and preaching about the fires of judgment. I fear sometimes that this is the stereotypical representation of Christians in culture. And sadly, at times it is justified. Now, of course, at times it's completely unjustified. And of course, we don't change our convictions about sin or sexual sin. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you about that after the service. Um, That's not the point of this sermon. We do need to learn how to talk about convictions about sexuality better, I think. But here's what's really sad about that connotation that sometimes can be said of Christians or sometimes is true of Christians. This is the essence of what I want you to feel today. Consider how Jesus treated sinners, especially sexual sinners. There are many examples of this in the Gospels. You could turn to John chapter 4 and the woman at the well And Jesus is talking to a sexual sinner. You can look at John chapter 8 and the woman caught in adultery and Jesus is talking to a sexual sinner. You you can think of Luke chapter 7 and Jesus being anointed with oil while he's sitting at this Pharisee's house. And this woman comes in and does this beautiful thing. And the Pharisee says, don't you know who's touching you right now? And Jesus interacts with a sexual sinner. Now, did Jesus sweep sin, any sin under the rug as no big deal? Not at all. He doesn't do that at all. But does he do this? Does he yell at them? Does he get all red in the face and fired up about it? Does he he organize a boycott of their hometown? Does he picket their house? Does he write blogs of condemnation about their specific sin issue? Does he rally his friends and stir them up to oppose these sinners? Does he rant on his Facebook page about them? He does none of these things. And here's what I want you to note today, and then we'll see how this connects to 2 Peter chapter 2. It's a bit disturbing that there seems to be a huge difference between 
number one, the reputation of Christian culture in reference to sinners, and then on the other hand, Jesus in reference to sinners, especially sexual sinners. And sadly, I wish that there would never be a case of number one in Christian culture, and it was all number two. See, Jesus doesn't go hard after sinners or sexual sinners with with heavy words of condemnation. He does call sin, sin. That's not up for debate. But it's not laced with a ferocity of words accompanied by flames of judgment. He's, He's way more gentle. Just go home and read John 4, John 8, Luke 7, and see what you find. Jesus doesn't have a track record of angrily blasting sexual sinners or any kind of sinner. He lovingly speaks the truth to them about sin and how forgiveness works and how true life is found. Here's how this connects to our text for today. You know who Jesus does go after? I mean, like, really goes after No holds barred, no pulling punches, where he does get red in the face and raise his voice. Do you have a category for Jesus being like this in your vision of Jesus? Is it a biblical vision? Who does Jesus blast? Jesus consistently blasts false teachers. False teachers. Prideful, hard-hearted, false teachers. Those who say they love God and teach the opposite of the Bible. Those who say they love God and lead people astray and away from the truth. Those who say they love God and twist and pervert the plain meaning of Scripture. I would challenge you to walk through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It'll take you about an hour. Just read through it and just, just take notes on this. It's the only thing you're looking for. Who does Jesus really get after? Who does Jesus have the harshest words for? It's not sexual sinners. It's not traitors. It's not idolaters or the foolish. He has words for them, but they're not. He definitely has words for them. That's not up for debate. We're not talking about capital T truth. We're talking about how you handle the truth, okay? He doesn't go after them with angry and aggressive words, but he does have angry and aggressive words reserved for some and it's false teachers. And in Jesus' day, these were the guys that should have known better. These were the guys that prided themselves on knowing all about the Bible. But Jesus came to them, John 5, 39, and says, You guys search the scriptures, seeking that in them you're going to have life, but you fail to come to me. That's a problem. And then you're seeking to influence other people away from me by saying you know so much about the Bible. Listen to what he says to them in Matthew 23. And don't just like think about this in terms of, oh, that's just the Bible. No, think about this. Like these are real words spoken between two people in real history. He calls them children of hell. He calls them blind guides. He calls them blind fools. He calls them whitewashed Tombs. Now, in our modern day speaking, that might be something like, you guys are pigs with lipstick on. He calls them snakes. 
He says straight up in verse, uh, verse 33 of chapter 23, you guys are going to hell. It's pretty, pretty aggressive. Jesus is not messing around. There's a time and a place to get fired up as Christians. And that is what Peter is doing. Peter's just carrying on the tradition of Jesus in 2 Peter chapter 2. He's just picking up where Jesus left off in chapter 2. So let's turn there now. 2 Peter chapter 2. So last week, Michael preached a great sermon on verses 1 through 10. And let's just summarize that real quick. We learned that Peter promises that false teachers are going to arise in the church. And here's the deal. God has pronounced judgment on them. You can just scroll through verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 and see that. He said, God has pronounced judgment on these false teachers. It might not happen all at once. It may not happen in our timetable, but it will happen. Judgment is coming for these guys. That's what Peter's saying. And he also makes this glorious promise, precious promise. And he says towards, I think it's verse 8 or 9, um, well, I've got it right here. Uh, he says in verse 9 that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So what he's saying here is these false teachers, they will not ultimately win. And if you know the right truth and you love the truth and you know the author of the truth and you love him, you will be rescued from this false teaching. It will not rule. So that's a really comforting promise for the church. The church will never be ultimately defeated by false teaching. It may be annoying for a season, but it will never be defeated. So that was last week, 2, 1 through 10. And today, Peter turns up the heat on these false teachers. He's not messing around. He's not playing games. He turns up the heat when it comes to his words. Now let's take a look, starting in verse 10b. Okay, now this is a long text this morning, so I'm just going to, we're going to read it. I'm going to intersperse some comments, and then we'll seek to apply this text, and we'll be done, okay? So let's look at 10b. Bold and willful, speaking of false teachers now, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment, against them before the Lord. So look at the, the phrase, um, as they blaspheme the glorious ones, end of verse 10. Now there's something going on here that we don't totally understand, okay? Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, uh, you need more context than the Bible actually gives, okay? So based on the context we do have, we do know something about this false teaching. Um, we've already talked about it last few weeks. These false teachers were saying that Jesus will not return, his second coming is a lie, okay? That's what they were saying. There's also something going on here that we don't have the full context of, and it's this, that they're blaspheming the glorious ones. And the glorious ones refers to um, spiritual beings, okay? That's what he's referring to, maybe an angelic host of some sort, okay? And what he's saying here is that they're somehow with their words disparaging this. We don't know what all that means, but we do know that Peter's fired up about it. So whatever it was, in its essence, was really bad. And he goes on to say that even angels themselves, though more powerful than these idiot false teachers, 
they don't dare speak like these guys are. And these guys, and, and, these, and these angels are way more powerful. See that there in verse 10 and 11? So he's just trying to illustrate these guys are fools, okay? Verse 12. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Again, the word blaspheming, repeated again. Blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. So just like Michael talked about last week in verses 1 through 10, he's just restating it again. Repetition for the sake of emphasis. These guys have got it coming. The Lord has their number, right? It's just a matter of time. Keep reading. They count it pleasure to to revel in the daytime. So they're fully out there. They're not trying to hide anything, right? They enjoy the spotlight. They want spotlight on their false teaching. Keep reading. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So while they feast with you, what does that mean? That means that they're hanging out. That could mean that in, in ancient, the ancient church would oftentimes have these feast gatherings where they would gather as a church and eat well together. And he's saying, these guys are just hanging out among you in your church gatherings, okay? And here's why that's a problem. Verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. So look at that phrase right in the middle. They entice unsteady souls. This could mean those that don't quite understand good doctrine yet, or it could mean those that are new believers. But either way, think about a toddler who's learning to walk. They're unsteady. So they're easy to knock over. That's kind of what he's saying here, is that they're targeting people that are easy to knock over with their false teaching. And here's the essence of their false teaching. They have eyes full of adultery. Literally, that means they have a desire to have sex with every woman they see. Sex with no restraints, okay? There will be no boundaries on my sexual desire. It's insatiable for sin. And they also have, so they got eyes, adultery. They also have hearts, greed, trained in greed, okay? Greedy for money with no restraints. So these guys, their false teaching has an end in mind. The end is sex with no restraint, money with no restraint. Sex and money. And he continues to illustrate this in verse 15. He quotes now uh, from the Old Testament. An illustration found in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. Okay, check it out. Verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They've followed the way of Balaam. The son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now look at verse 15 where it says that he loved selfish, I'm sorry, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Who loved gain from wrongdoing. Keeping with this theme of greed, he's talking about this guy Balaam, who was basically willing to be hired to pronounce judgment. He's supposed to be a prophet that pronounces 
words of God, but he's like, I'd rather love money, and if you pay me, I'll say whatever you want. That was the essence of what Balaam was trying to do. And, and Peter's just saying these false teachers are just like that. If it pays, we'll do it because we love money. I don't care about right or wrong, truth or false. If it pays, I'll do it because my heart is set on greed, just like Balaam. Verse 17, he continues to illustrate what these guys are like. They're waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. So what's a waterless spring? That's an interesting image. A spring springs forth with water, and water's good. If you don't have water, you're going to die. So a spring should be a source of nourishment and life and satisfaction when you're so thirsty, right? And he's just saying these guys are springs, but they're no source of nourishment. They're no source of life. They're no, no source of satisfaction. They're a spring, but they don't have any water. So if you're starving or if you're um, dying of thirst and you come up to this spring, well, you're as good as dead because there's nothing there. And then he says that they're mist driven by a storm. They're weak, unstable. They have no substance. Like a mist that just is here today, gone tomorrow, that shows up in the morning, and then the sun comes and it's gone. Has no real substance you can grab onto. These guys are like that. They're like a, like a mist driven by a storm. And here he brings the real heavy words. Look at what it says. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been Reserved. What is that? They're going to hell. He just says it straight up. These guys are going to hell. That's an audacious statement, is it not? He says it. It's in the Bible. These guys are going to hell. Just like Jesus said to the Pharisees, you guys are going to hell. He says the same thing here. Why? Well, here's why. Verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly... They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So he has in mind, again, the, the toddler, the, 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 the baby Christian who's unsteady and is, and is here barely escaping. See how it says that? And they got eyes targeted on those folks. And here's what they're going to do. They're going to try to entice. And what are they going to use to entice? They're going to use sensual passions like sex or like food or like anything that's sensory that we're created to enjoy. Like go to an art gallery and look with your eyes, sensory, a beautiful painting and enjoy it. See a sunset. So these are all good things that God has created. God has created us to, be, uh, to have senses, to be sensory, right? But what Peter is saying here is they're using those things and taking these good desires or good drives and making them ultimate. That's the essence of this sensual passions. It means human drives. And those are good things. Those are God-made things like the drive for food or sex or work. But when you take these good desires and make them God things and take them out of the boundary that God has created— what happens? They enslave us. And these false teachers are trying to take those things and entice people that are already somewhat vulnerable and trying to instill their false teaching and trying to really root it down deep in these folks. Have sex however you want. It doesn't matter. 
That's what they would say. And here's why that's so messed up. Verse 19. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. See the irony there? For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So what Peter's saying here is whatever you take as ultimate, whether it's sex or money or whatever, whatever you take as ultimate, that's the thing you're going to be a slave to. So human beings by nature are going to ascribe ultimate, ultimacy to something. That's just how we're made. We're made to be worshipers. We're made to ascribe ultimate value to something. You can't not do that. It's just part of being a human being. You will take something as ultimate. And the question then is, is that thing that will be your master, is it a good master? Does that master have your best interest in mind? You will have a master. It's just a matter of which one. And Peter's saying that these false teachers promise freedom and life. But when your teaching leads to sex and money being your God, it's just a matter of time before you're enslaved by that thing and it will corrupt you to the core. Let's keep reading verse 20. For if, you just sum it up now about these guys. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now track with this. What he's saying is, these false teachers previously have been exposed to right teaching in the church. Okay? They've had knowledge of Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It doesn't say they're saved, or that they loved it, or they um, were regenerated. It says they had some knowledge. Okay? For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse than the first. And here's what that means. Verse 21. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness, being exposed to right teaching in the church, than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Heavy words. So what was he getting at here with this last part? Peter's just saying that these false teachers have been exposed to the truth, but they never really loved the truth. They hung out with right doctrine, but in the end, they're showing that they hate right doctrine. They're never really Christians, but they did hang out with Christians, Exposed to a lot of right teaching. But over time, they chose to go the way of lies instead of the truth. It's like they, at first, they didn't know anything about Jesus, right? And then they came into the church and learned some things about the gospel. But then they decided to pervert that gospel and make it about sex and money. And as a result, they're just right back where they started. Right at the beginning, they didn't know anything and now, through this false teaching, this proving they don't know anything any, anyway. Like a dog returns to his vomit. That's what these guys are like. And it would have been better for them just not to go in that circle. That's what Peter's saying. Just stay where you were. Those are heavy words from Peter. Words that might make us uncomfortable, right? 
but God has given his word as a gift. So there's much we can learn this morning. So how would we sum all this up? What's Peter doing here? I think he's just simply giving a good old-fashioned Jesus-like pronouncement of judgment on false teachers. The Bible does not pull any punches from beginning to end, from whether it's false prophets in the Old Testament to false teachers when Jesus was alive or false teachers um, during, the, during the book of Acts and beyond in the, in, the, in the epistles. We can read all about it. There's a time and a place for a strong rebuke and a strong pronouncement of judgment. And notice something very, very important. This is not written to just plain old, normal unbelievers that we find in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, those that just say straight up, I'm not a Christian, right? He's not writing to those people, right? Here's who he's writing to. He's writing to those who say they're a Christian, right? And hang out with Christians, maybe in the church, and teach things that are clearly out of bounds of biblical Christianity, okay? That's a very important distinction, right? Remember how we talked about how Jesus treated sinners? These are not just run-of-the-mill unbelievers. These are people that are clearly deceiving other Christians with false teaching and claiming to be a Christian in the process. With these people, there's a time and a place for strong, direct words. So let's think about this application in our lives. So I think when applying a text like this, we need to really keep in mind ways we can screw it up, okay? And so one of the ways we can fight against screwing it up is knowing maybe our default personality and the maybe default tendencies of that personality, okay? Let me, give you, let me start with this. We'll just, we'll, just talk, uh, we'll just talk in like maybe some stark binaries here. So one hand here, one hand here, and you can figure out where you fall on the spectrum, okay? So if you're someone over here who enjoys being right all the time, who always has the right answer and loves to communicate that right answer. You don't hesitate. You're not very suspicious of yourself. You just go in and here's the truth. I'm not lacking in confidence. You need to hear it, okay? That's over here. And you love to maybe be especially internet courageous. You with me? Like you're arbiter of all things truthful via Facebook, okay? And you get all fired up, and you love to rebuke, and the internet gives you this huge platform to be modern-day Martin Luther, okay? If you lean towards that, if you are that, or maybe just lean, maybe just even lean a little slightly towards that, you need to be careful with this text, with this sermon, okay? There's a time to be angry in light of false teaching and seek to convince others that they are in the wrong. But just be careful. Especially when it comes to the anger that can be maybe easy for you. Because we're all about the truth. I get that. But the Bible says maybe even more than 2 Peter 2, the repeated refrain of the Bible is that your anger can be dangerous. And it leads to all types of sin. And so if you're this personality type that leans this way, yes and amen, we need to stand up for the truth but just be careful with how you manage your emotions around that, okay? And how that gets expressed in public, okay? 
See, we fight against false teaching. That, that's not up for debate. But simultaneously, we have to be aware that sin can so quickly be around the corner for those of us that lean this way. Now, people over here have sin issues too, but this one, we just got to keep this one in mind, okay? Be on your guard as you fight for the truth. Because you don't want to discredit the truth that you're proclaiming by being an idiot or being a complete jerk. You with me? And let me say this as well for those of you that, that might lean this direction. Not everyone who you might initially think is a false teacher is actually a false teacher. Okay? So what we need to do is have some patience sometimes and seek counsel with others that, that love God and love his word. Or maybe check in with your city group leader or an elder or someone else or your mom or dad who, who you trust or whatever. Okay? But I would guess that most people in this room probably don't lean this direction. I, I know a lot of you in this room. I've been in this church for a while. Most of us, I don't think, there are, there are some of us, but not most of us lean this way. Most of us lean more this side. And, and that's this. We need to grow. This side would be, I don't ever say anything. And it might be because I don't really know how to identify false teaching, or it might be just because I want everyone to like me and I hate to stand up for the truth. I think most of us probably lean this direction. And we need to grow in the area of discerning false teaching and being willing to look someone in the eye and not blink and just say, no. That is false, and that is harmful, and you got to stop saying that. Now, some of us might just struggle to even know when false teaching is false teaching. So what does that mean? That means we just need to get to know our Bible, right? We just need to get to know our Bible, right? And I don't want you to leave here today if you don't know your Bible at all and feel guilty. That's not the point. The point is, hey, let's just get started, Right? Ten minutes a day of Bible over the next 50 years can, can give you a great filter by which you can discern false teaching. Maybe ten minutes a day for the next year can increase your filter for understanding false teaching, right? So let's just get started somewhere. You don't feel guilty if you don't know your Bible. Let's just get started. Um, there's blessing in life there for you. But we also need to grow in the area of just wanting everyone to like us. If I'm never willing to stir the pot and look someone in the eye who's clearly saying false things in the church, um, and I just am absolutely paralyzed to say anything, what does that say about what I believe about God? It might, one thing might be that I believe that my justification is found in everyone liking me and not by God. It might mean that I have to um, be a slave to everyone's approval because if I don't have everyone's approval, then I won't feel accepted. If I don't feel accepted, then I'll feel worthless. And then I forget that God already says I'm accepted. And then there's no way that I'm worthless. And so I'm listening to other people's opinion of me and not listening to God's opinion of me. And why do I do that? So maybe that's one area we need to grow in when it comes to this side of the spectrum. But let me just give you an, some, some examples here of how I think this works out in our culture. As a church, I don't think we should mess around in the least with the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to our door. 
Now, what I'm saying is this. We don't disrespect those people. These are human beings made in the image of God, worthy of love and honor and respect. That's not up for debate. But the content of their teaching is the problem. And we don't soft-pedal the lies that they teach in the name of Christianity, saying this is Christianity and teaching false doctrine and seeking to pers- persuade others. That's 2 Peter chapter 2. That is a big deal. See, see, they go through our neighborhoods trying to reach those that we're trying to reach and saying things that are completely opposite of what we say in terms of the essence of the gospel, in terms of the essence of authority, the Bible alone, in terms of Christology, who is Jesus, and the essence of soteriology, how do you get saved? It's a different message, but they're saying it's the same Christianity. It's not. That's a problem. And when they walk through my neighborhood that I'm trying to reach and saying these lies, it gets me fired up. And I look them in the eye and I said, I don't want you here. I don't want you near my kids. I don't want you near my wife. I don't want you near my neighbors. This is very serious stuff. I challenge them to repent. Deceiving and lying about the truth and harming those who follow them. I challenge them to leave my neighborhood. Again, I'm not talking disrespecting people. Okay? But their teaching is a blood-serious error. And we don't mess around with it. Jesus doesn't mess around with it. Peter doesn't mess around with it. It's a huge deal, and part of being disciples of Jesus is learning to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Let me give you one more. Uh, William Paul Young is the author of this book, The Shack. And I haven't read The Shack. I'm not going to talk about The Shack. That's not the point, okay? Some of you, a lot of you in this room have probably read The Shack. Not a big deal, okay? Well, it may or may not be a big deal, but um, this is, he's, he's created a story. It's fiction, okay? Um, and he's gotten very, very famous. On Amazon.com, it's like top 10 for the last decade in some category that I was looking up this week. Millions and millions of copies, Okay? Now, don't worry. If this is your favorite book, I'm not going to blast the shack, okay? Um, Or if this is your mom or dad's favorite book, a lot of my extended family have read the shack. But here's the point. This guy has gotten famous. William Paul Young has sold millions of copies. And as a result, he's published other books. And the, uh, the, the latest book he has is this one. It's called Lies We Believe About God. Now, this is not fiction. This is not some narrative that he came up with. This is him teaching, okay? The title is Lies We Believe About God, meaning I'm, I'm, I'm the authority here, and I want you to know this, and I want you to read this, and I'm seeking to be influential. Here's a quote. The good news is not that Jesus has opened up the possibility of salvation— And you have been invited to receive Jesus into your life. So take note. He's saying clearly the gospel is something and it's not this. Okay? That Jesus has opened up the possibility of salvation and you have been invited to receive Jesus into your life. That's not the gospel. But here's what he says the gospel is. The gospel is that Jesus has already included you into his life, into his relationship with God the Father, into his anointing in the Holy Spirit. The good news is that Jesus did this without your vote. 
And whether you believe it or not won't make it any less or more true. Further on, he anticipates the objection. Are you suggesting that everyone is saved? That you believe in universal salvation? His response, that is exactly what I'm saying. Now this is a lie. This is garbage. This book needs to find the nearest garbage bin, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm straight up serious. There's a lot more problems than just this that we could, have, that we could, we could uh, unpack that we don't have time for. But the point is this. This man is saying he's a Christian, has had massive influence in the church, capital C Church, throughout the world, through publishing of books, and is teaching things that are clearly false, biblically speaking. Now, if you're th- remember, if you're on this side of the spectrum, I'm not saying we organize a book-burning party. I'm not saying you, like, assault your grandma who loves the shack. You know what I mean? That's not what I'm saying. So you need to calm down, breathe, okay? But it does mean that we shouldn't be afraid in the least to communicate that this man is explicitly teaching false doctrine in his most recent book. This is very dangerous for him, and it's very dangerous for those that are influenced by him. So we have to clearly say that what this communicates is false and should be rejected. Ideas have consequences, and if these ideas filter into the church, this is what Peter's so hyper about. This cannot get a foothold in the church, you guys. This cannot get a foothold in the church, because what happens? What always happens through 2,000 years of church history is you have division. And Jesus hates division. The Apostle Paul hates division. Go read his epistles. And that's what this stuff does. It weasels its way into the church and it divides and destroys. Let me close with this. It would be easy for us, especially for guys like me, to walk away from a sermon like this and be fired up about your convictions. And that's, in some sense, a really good thing. But here's where it's dangerous. For me to, 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 to listen to this explanation of William Paul Young's teaching, and what's so easy for me is to go, man, that guy's an idiot. Thank God I'm not an idiot like him. And get real prideful. I'm never going to be like one of those wacko false teachers. Beware, pride may be right around the corner, and God hates pride. It is possible to be humble and take a firm stand against false teaching. And that's what we're shooting for, okay? And one of the ways we can embrace a humble mindset against pride is to recognize this. Check this out. That in all of us, every single one of us in this room, In every single one of us in this room, there lives the possibility of conjuring up and believing false teaching all on our own. I can manufacture false teaching in my own brain. I don't need Mormons, JWs, or William Paul, whatever, in the shack. I don't need any of that. I can conjure this stuff up in my own head and be tempted to believe it. There's poison that already lives inside my own head when it comes to lies that I can be tempted to believe about God. So let this humble us. Let's just be collectively humbled 
this morning as we fight false teaching. See, we confess that this sinful false teaching that resides in our own hearts is so easy to believe. Maybe it lies like this. God, I know you don't love me anymore because I just screwed up and sinned. God, I know you didn't really rise from the dead because miracles just don't happen. Or God, man, I'm suffering right now and I just feel like that means that you hate me and you're out to get me. Those are all lies. I've thought those things. A false teaching in my own brain. So what do we do? We, we simply return to the essence of the gospel. We confess the sin, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll cleanse his church from false teaching. And Lord, may you start in my own head. And we, and we return to Jesus and pray like the man that came up to him and said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And, and because we know that the cross has put to death these lies and that the tomb is empty, we can rejoice and live life that is on the one hand humble and on the other able to stand for the truth. And as a church family, we have to covenant to do this together because we need each other. So times can be challenging, messy stuff. And so the more that we humble ourselves, seek help from one another, maintain our convictions, this church will be beautiful, okay? Let's pray. Father, would you help us? We need your help. These things, these matters are complicated. We mess it up all the time. Lord, we want to be faithful to your truth. So Lord, would you help us? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.